Last week, we kicked off Advent with our initial dive into the book of Micah, and there we saw how Micah's message is indeed, it is a message of hope, but it's one that can be a little challenging to read, a little hard to read, at least at first. The Lord in Micah's day had sent a message to his people to let them know that his judgment was coming for their idolatry, an idolatry that had manifested itself in injustice and oppression and human exploitation and the misuse of power. And God's promise in Micah and throughout the scriptures is that he will bring an end to the oppression of the world, to the injustices of the world. And the hard part for God's people to hear is that his judgment begins with his people. He's going to end oppression, but it's going to end in his people first. But his judgment, of course, and there's that, that note of hope and optimism that's found all throughout the scriptures and even right here in a, a book like Micah, is that God's judgment is not judgment for judgment's sake alone. No, his judgment has a redemption to it. It has a promise of restoration, hope for the oppressed, but hope also for the oppressor. And we come this morning to chapter 4, and I recognize that we've skipped a lot of Micah. It's just we get, we get four Sundays in Advent, and there's just not enough time to, to go through the book as a whole. If you're interested in that, you can go to our website and, and listen to the Bible study that went verse by verse throughout the, the whole book throughout the summer. But for Advent, we're, we're jumping from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 4. And if we had been reading verse by verse, line by line, we would have felt just how important and needed this passage in chapter 4 is to be sort of a change of pace in Micah's message to God's people. It comes to us like a refreshing oasis in a desert giving us hope once again and uh, the promise of restoration here. What has been hinted at for three chapters is now going to take center stage as we turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 4. If you have one of our guest Bibles, we're on page 746. I'm going to read just the first five verses here of chapter 4 of Micah, and I hope that you can feel, remember, in the midst of this message of coming judgment, just how refreshing Verses like this must have felt to the people of God in Micah's day. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord. Of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Though the nations around us follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. Now the promise of restoration that is uh, found here in verse 4 is framed around the idea of a mountain, there in verse 1. When the Bible talks about mountains, it's, it's usually f- loaded with deep 
theological significance. Take, for example, in the book of Exodus. We know that God at Mount Sinai presented his, his uh, covenant and his promises to his people. He established the nation of, of Israel as his treasured possession to, to rule over and to uh, share with them his covenantal love and promises. It is from Mount Zion that God dwells among his people in the temple in Jerusalem. Mountains in the scriptures point to the place where God dwells and God reigns. In fact, you could even argue that mountains throughout the scriptures, especially as we read through the books like the Psalms, don't just point to a place. Mountains point to God himself. In fact, I think it's more accurate to say that. Take, for example, the, the, the phrase Mount Zion. We, we know that Mount Zion originally referred to a different physical location than it would today. Originally, it referred to a Jebusite fortress attacked and seized by King David on a different hill than the place where the temple would later be built. So the term Mount Zion, as we find it in the scriptures, yes, at some level it points to a a physical location, but more deeply, it's not about the physical location so much as it is about the presence of God and and his rule. And that's what verses 1 and 2 here in Micah chapter 4 are referring to. It's a promise of a time when the mountain of God's presence and God's rule in the world in the world would be established as the chief of the mountains that it would be raised up above all other hills God's presence and God's rule here's the thing about promises though you know this from your own day-to-day relationships with people and interactions with others in the world that a promise is about as good as the one making it isn't it yeah, I think there's, there's all too many of us in here have been the recipients of promises from people who failed to hold up their end of their promise. People who may have made promises time and time again, and with each, with each promise that's broken, you, you come to realize how foolish it would be to trust that person ever again. And so promises are only as good as the one making them, and some promises just seem all too good to be true, don't they? And that's kind of how Micah's promise reads right here in chapter 4. Once again, if we've been working our way through this book and we've been hearing God's indictment against his people, and as we would feel the the weight of, of the impending judgment upon the nation at the hand of the Assyrians, we would come to something, the promises here in chapter 4, and we would have a hard time really accepting them to be true. If we were people in that day, you, you, you can almost not blame them for for doubting a little bit. I wonder if Micah himself even had a hard time believing some of the things that God was having him deliver and declare to his people. I wonder if Micah himself felt like these things were too good to be true. That in the midst of the wickedness and corruption of a world gone awry, with a hostile nation on their doorstep, God is promising his people that everything will be made right. Do you ever feel like the people in that day may have felt? That maybe the the promises of God in your life are a little too good to be true? Do you ever find yourself struggling to doubt what you say you believe you believe? I think if you find yourself in that situation, and and I would venture to say most of us, if not all of us, have had times in our lives where we've, we've looked at the promises of Scripture, the claims of God's Word, we know what we believe, we know what to say, we say the right words, we know the right things to come to church and, and express to one another, but we, we have those moments when things are most hard, when things are, when the world around us is most dark, when we're struggling or when we're suffering, 
we find ourselves doubting a little bit. It's, it's the human tendency when, when we take our eyes off the promise maker and we start looking at the circumstances, we start to doubt the promises a little bit, don't we? Well, the key for the people of Micah's day, the, the, the key for the people of God at any day in the history of the world is to never take your eyes off the promise maker, the one who has proven himself faithful. Unlike those people I referred to a, a moment ago in your life who have not who have broken promises, who have not lived up to the things that they claim that they would be or do in your life. He's, God's not like that at all, is he? He's never failed in any of his promises. He may not have fulfilled his promises in the, the timer, the, the, the timing or the manner in which you wanted him to or expected him to, but that doesn't mean he was unfaithful in any way. Verse 2, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. It's an invitation from the promise maker himself for people to return to him. He hasn't abandoned them. They have abandoned him. Come, let us return to him. Let us approach him. Not so that the people of God can bring something to him to somehow make things right. If I just offer this thing to him, if I just do this thing for him, then he will accept me. Then he will welcome me back into his presence. And that's not the invitation here at all. The invitation of God is never for us to come and bring something to him that we might earn God's favor, that we might earn God's attention, that God might then be faithful to his promises to us. No, he invites us to come to himself that we might receive what he has done on our behalf, what he is offering us. Come to me. Come receive what I have to offer. Come accept what I have done, what I'm going to do for you. Oftentimes when you and I make our promises to others, it's because you and I have failed in some way, isn't it? We've let someone down. We've hurt someone's feelings. We've made a decision that negatively impacted someone that we know or someone, even someone we love. And what do we say when, we're, when that's brought to light and we're held to account and we're, we're broken in, on the inside for the way we've let someone down? We make promises then, don't we? I, I'm sorry. I promise never to do it again. I know there's a whole bunch of husbands in here this morning who have probably uttered those very words this morning. I promise not to do that again. I'm, I'm so foolish. I made this mistake. I'm, I'm stubborn. Whatever it is, forgive me. I promise never to do it again. But we say these things so that we can regain the trust of the people that we've hurt in some way, the people that we've wronged. But God's different than we are. God doesn't make promises to people because he has wronged them. God makes promises to people because we have wronged him. It's interesting, isn't it? The relationship of God to people as it pertains to these promises and these invitations to come. It's not because God has somehow failed us and he's trying to make things right and he's promising never to do something again because he's, he, he wronged us in some way. It's because you and I have failed him. That he makes promises. I promise to do this because of you, because of what you have done. I promise on your behalf to do these things. And God has a perfect track record. Something not a single one of us in here can ever claim for ourselves. A perfect track record of doing everything he ever said he would do. Every single time. There's never been one time in the history of the world where God said he would do something a certain way and then he went back on his word or, or did something different than what he promised he would do. He is always faithful. He is always true. Even, 
even when, and I would say especially when, you and I are not. And he promises a day when nations will draw near to him and their idols will be removed. When those counterfeit shrines on those other hills, those other high places, when those things will be brought low and when the mountain of his presence and the mountain of his rule, the mountain of his kingdom will be raised above all else. And whether it's to a nation of former slaves in Egypt or to a nation of captives getting ready to go out into exile or even to modern people like you or me, the life of faith is never trusting in what we can do but stepping into what God has done on our behalf and trusting obedience. It's exactly what the invitation is to the people in Egypt. Step out in faith into what I have done. That's exactly what he's saying to the people getting ready to go out into exile and captivity. Step into faith in what I am doing, what I'm about to do. It's what he says to you and to me this morning. Step out in faith into what I have done, what I am doing, what I am about to do. It's believing in his promises, no matter how hard they are to believe, no matter how too, too good they may be to be true. It's believing in his promises because he has demonstrated his trustworthiness time and time again. Now, verse 3 begins to provide a picture for us of what this restoration that God is promising his people is actually going to look like. He says, many peoples and distant nations will be brought together and justice will reign. And there's this next expression here that, that it's from the first time I ever read it and every time since has always really captured my mind and my heart. He says, swords will be turned into plowshares and spears will be turned into pruning hooks. And that, by the way, is the same type of expression from the prophets Isaiah and Joel. All these were contemporaries of one another. They're all speaking to, to the same, roughly the same people at roughly the same time. And they all use the same expression. And it's one that's really important to understanding the very nature of God's restoration for his people in the world. Now, you know what a sword and a spear are. They're instruments, aren't they? And what are they instruments for? Instruments for war, instruments of death. They're, they're blades used to pierce and cut through skin in order to kill. But what about a plowshare? What about a pruning hook? Those two are, are designed to cut and to tear, but not flesh. No, a, a plowshare and a pruning hook are instruments of life. A plowshare, of course, is that leading edge of a plow that, that cuts and tills and turns the earth. A pruning hook is intended to keep plants healthy and fruitful. I, I learned all about the process of pruning this past summer as I took my first dive into the world of tomato plant growing. I didn't really know much what to do, but with the help of you know, Bill Wicker and others and Google, I was able to figure out how to grow tomatoes, and I grew a whole bunch of tomatoes, and I learned that pruning is a really important thing to do. It keeps plants at manageable sizes. It helps to, uh, the stems to, and, the, and the fruit to, to keep those things off the ground. You, you keep the, the base of the plant clear so that there's air circulation, and it reduces the, the opportunity for things like fungus to grow, and it just promotes a, just a general health of the plant and leads to optimal fruit production, and I was so apparently so good at, at pruning my tomato plants, they were still producing edible fruit in the middle of November. Wow is right. 
Not bad for a first-time tomato grower. Now, don't even say a word about what they look like now. I know that they're quite dead, and I need to remove them from my yard. I will take care of it, I promise. But just a few weeks ago, there were still tomatoes on there, and we ate them, and they were still good. They weren't quite as big, but they were still good. That's the picture, I think, of what God is beginning to paint in the minds of his people of what his restoration is meant to look like. Not tomato plants, per se. But it's a, it's a, it's a time when peoples and their instruments are, will be renewed and repurposed. It is a time when peoples and the instruments, the peoples of the world and the instruments of the world will be renewed and repurposed. And that's not some sort of, you know, idea that kind of hovers around the margins of the the central truths of the scripture as though there's sort of a nice little aside or tangent thing that we sort of kind of add into the central message of of God's word. I find that at the heart of all of God's message about salvation. God desires to take the things of the world to renew them and to repurpose them. And that tells us that God's view of restoration of his earth is not a matter of evacuation or even annihilation. God's restoration is not evacuation or annihilation. He's not offering to take his people and whisk them out of the world. Right out of the midst of their troubles, right out of the midst of the brokenness and the darkness, with the Assyrians on, on the, 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 the borders, getting ready to invade and bring judgment upon his people, God's restoration is not to somehow extract his people from their troubles. Nor is God going to do away with everything and just start all over again. Boy, my people have really messed up. Everyone in the nation is corrupt. I'm just going to wipe them all out and start all over again. That's never God's plan. No, God is bringing restoration to this world. This world. Right in the midst of where things aren't right. The far off will be brought near. The high will be brought low. Things used for death will be things then used for life. Think about this principle as it relates to your own experience of salvation through Christ. Jesus didn't come into your life when you gave your heart to him and said, I've come to make all new things. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, I come to make what? All things new. He didn't come into your life when you invited him in and somehow discard you. He didn't come into your life and say, I'm starting over. I'm getting rid of you. I'm starting over. No. He came into your life and he forgave you. He cleansed you. He wiped the slate clean. He justified you. He made you right in his own eyes. He initially sanctified you, began to purify you from the inside out. It's nothing short of a transformation from what you were to what he wants you to become. And just like swords becoming plowshares, God's grace transforms us that we would, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, no longer present our bodies, our members, as instruments of unrighteousness. But that we would present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and our bodies as instruments of righteousness for God. It is not evacuation. It is not annihilation. It is transformation. 
And even the new earth itself is not some altogether new earth where God wipes out his creation and recreates something entirely new. No, it is a, re- a renewed creation, one that has been restored and reunited with heaven forever. And I want you to think that way when you look at the circum- when you ever do look at the circumstances in your life. Whether they're those external circumstances where everything around you is broken and everything around you is hard and there's all these outside sources bringing misery and suffering into your life or whether you're looking internally at the problems within your own heart. I want you to take this perspective to whatever your circumstances are and realize that God's solution is not to whisk you out of them or to remove them from your life in the way that you want at least. No, this, this is the perspective that often wrongly dominates our prayer lives, isn't it? Where we we long for this end of pain and the ease of suffering, the resolution to some sort of complication in our lives. And when things work out as we pray, we celebrate, we give God praise. We, we do, you know, when it comes time to prayer requests, we give our praise how God answered our prayer exactly how we wanted him to. I prayed for this and God did it. So let's give him praise. But what happens when he doesn't answer your prayers the way you want them to? When he hasn't removed the problem from your life, or remove you from the problem in your life? How do you praise him then? How, how you respond in those moments will tell a whole lot more about your faith than how you respond when he does the opposite. And we bring this wrong mentality to our prayer lives and to the life of faith, but God so often does things so differently than the way we expect him to. His way of working in our lives is seldom, if ever, evacuation or annihilation, taking you out or taking the, making those things go away. But no, he says, in the midst of your brokenness. In the midst of your suffering. Right in the middle of when things are hard. When you don't have the answer. When you're beginning to doubt a little bit. When you don't see a way forward, or as you've heard it said, when you're, you, know, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you don't know whether it's the other end or if it's a train bearing down on you. It's then that God says, I will restore. Right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of you. I'm doing my work. What is true on a cosmic scale, as we view what God is doing in all the world, is true on a personal level as well. That he's bringing restoration right into the midst of our brokenness, using our bad circumstances even to accomplish his restoration. That's the, it's simultaneously the, perhaps the hardest thing to accept about God and the most unbelievable, unbelievably good thing to accept about God. That the means of his restoration is his rebuke, at least in the case of the people in Micah's day. That it's by the hand of the Assyrians that he's not only bringing judgment, but it's by the hands of the Assyrians that he's going to break their hearts from the attachment to their idols. It's not judgment for judgment's sake. It's judgment with a redemptive note. Its goal is to make his people have life once again. And maybe he's doing the exact same thing in your life today. That the very things you're spending all of your time and energy praying that God would take away are the very things he wants to use to bring his greater good into your life. And you might be saying, Pastor Sean, the hardest things in my life are terrible. The depths of brokenness and pain and misery and suffering and injustice that I experience 
are the worst things in my life. How could God's hand ever be at the center of that? And when you come to that point in your walk of faith, I want you to look at the cross of Jesus and tell me what you think then. The greatest suffering, the darkest hour, the worst injustice was God's means to giving life to the world. He brings restoration right to the midst of your brokenness. The Bible says that the things in your life that man intends for evil, God is in some way. God is in some way behind it and in it and working through it for your good and for his glory. The Bible says that how many things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Some things, all things, all things. And it takes having the eyes of faith to see that he's working in and through your difficulties. And that, those eyes to see are everything. Tim Keller, in his uh, book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, tells a story about two men who were convicted of a serious crime and sent to prison. And the first man was told very early on in his prison sentence that his wife and his only son had died. And the second knew in his time in prison that his wife and his daughter were healthy and alive and waiting for him to come out one day. Now, how do you think the knowledge that each of those men had about their future determined their experience of the present? It turns out that the first man who knew that he had nothing, the ones he treasured most in the world, were not going to be there for him on the other end of his of a sentence, while well, he ended up wasting away in prison and dying after two years. But the first man endured harsh conditions for 10 years because he knew what was waiting for him on the other side. Now, what was the difference in their experience? It wasn't, it wasn't the circumstances in the prison the harshness of their treatment. The difference is what they knew was waiting for them on the other side of the hard times. The point is this. What we know to be true about the future will inform your experience of the present. What we know to be true about the future will inform your experience of the present. It will inform the way that you endure suffering. It will in- inform and bring a difference to, way that you, to the way that you endure oppression and injustice. Based on what we know about the future promises of God, you and I can indeed endure the harshest of conditions in whatever dungeon you and I find ourselves in in life. Because God is not just a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. And he might not whisk you away. He might not remove all your troubles, but he promises his presence and his power in your life today. Even when things are bad. And he uses those bad things to do great good. As C.S. Lewis famously once said, life with God is not immunity from difficulties. Life with God is peace in difficulties. It's not until the coming of Jesus that the promises here in Micah's day could even begin to find their fullest fulfillment 
and meaning. You see, this promise of the mountain of God being raised up high, if that's ultimately a promise about God's presence and rule in the world, well, look how God begins to fulfill that promise in the person of his son. Where God himself came in the flesh and dwelt among his people in all of his fullness. Jesus, the son, embodies the very rule and the very reign of the kingdom of God on earth. The one who was high but then became low came to earth that he might then be raised up, how? On a cross that all men may be drawn to himself. Yes, God is bringing judgment on the oppression and the injustice of the world beginning with his people, but where did God's stroke of judgment fall hardest? And most complete, decisively once and for all time, it fell upon his son. All the oppression of the world, all the injustice of the world, all the abuse of power and exploitation and the evil and the corruption and the defilement was laid upon him. Not judgment for judgment's sake, but with the eye in mind, the end in mind of the salvation of all the world. And it is in him that we find peace. Peace with God. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Peace with God. Peace with one another. And by his spirit, you and I are transformed and made new once more. Not done away with. The Spirit doesn't come to annihilate you. The Spirit comes to renew you. So that you might present your instruments of death to him to then become instruments of life. Instruments of unrighteousness becoming instruments of righteousness. Transformed into the image of the Son. A time is coming when there will be a final absolute fulfillment of all these promises. And you and I look forward to it and long for it with all of our hearts. A final end to all oppression once and for all. Tell me that doesn't sound like a great day. When all the bad stuff that you see on your smartphones every, every morning you wake up and all the notifications that blow up all the time and breaking news on the cable and, and the newspaper, which I can't even bring myself to look at the newspaper. All the mess in the world today, there is coming a time when it'll cease Completely. No more war, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more poverty, no more homelessness, no more of any of those things, no more exploitation. When the earth will be filled, as Habakkuk tells us, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, where God's rule will extend even to the very ends of the earth. But guess what? In Christ and in his church, you and me, in us, we find initial fulfillment of these promises today. The things that he's promising to do at the end of the time, he's already doing now. Through his son and his body. He is addressing oppression and injustice, but he's, he's, he's addressing at its source one heart at a time. He's starting in your heart and in my heart. He's fixing the problems in the world, but he's beginning with you and me. The church made up of peoples from all nations, tribes, and tongues. In him we come together, Jew and Gentile. Those who are far off from one another are brought together in the church. The very image of what Micah is seeing at the end of time is being fulfilled in our midst right here this morning. Where God's reign is being established in our hearts. 
His word permeates our lives. It's being written on our hearts, hearts that have been circumcised, hearts that have been taken from hearts of stone and turned into hearts of flesh, where he can then inscribe his law at the very core of who we are. His word is going out into all the world, but guess where it's going, who it's going out through? You and me. By our word, by our deed, through our testimony of the things we say and do. What has begun in us will be brought to completion. And his word is our victory and our comfort in the meantime. To a people about to experience the suffering and judgment and exile, well, a promise of peace has been given. Coming in the form of God's presence and rule. And you and I can experience that peace today in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know the peace of God in your life today? Have you experienced the peace that passes all understanding? The peace that comes right into the center of your circumstances and your difficulties and your pain. And it doesn't whisk you out of it. (laughs) And it doesn't take the problems away. But it gives you everything you need to persevere. Everything. He will always be and provide everything that you need. If you keep your eyes of faith on him. Will you put your eyes of faith on him today? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the encouragement of the scriptures that, that our life and hope to our troubled and weary hearts. So many of us right now if not all of us, are, are burdened. Some of us are, find ourselves feeling like sheep who have gone astray. And we need the comforting presence of a shepherd, a good shepherd who will leave the 99 behind to find the one, even at the cost of his own life. We need the assurance, Lord, from your spirit, through whom you fulfilled your promise to come to your people, to never leave or forsake us. Lord, you haven't left us. You haven't abandoned us. And the world wants us to think that you have. And our circumstances tempt us to, to start to believe that that might be true. But Lord, we, we choose right now this morning, decisively by faith, to believe in your promises that you are with us through it all. And that you are all that we need to carry us through. Lord, you are at work in every life here today to do a greater good, resulting in the glory of God. Lord, would you do that work in my life and in our lives today? Thank you, Lord, that we have hope and peace in Jesus, the reason for the season, in whose name we pray, amen.